Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in here to Talent Talk. It's Tuesday, and I'm really excited about two of our guests that we brought you here today uh, for our show. So if you uh, don't know how the show works um, or need a little refresher, um, basically, you know, I have this incredible experience of being able to meet all these inspiring leaders and people through uh, the different uh, maybe shows that I'm speaking at or conferences I attend, maybe find them through LinkedIn or wherever it may be. And I love to pick their brain, find out what they're thinking about, see what things I can learn from them. And so this show is really designed to give you that opportunity to listen in on that conversation. So I'm not the only one that gets to find out all their cool secrets and the things that they're working on and thinking about. Um, in fact, there's been so many great stories that we have developed over the last five years for this show that I put them all in a book called The Power of Company Culture. You can find it on Amazon or anywhere you buy books. And it's really inspired around you get all these great guests, uh, people, you know, the everyday entrepreneur, HR exec to, you know, some of the powerhouses that we've had on the show, like Southwest Airlines and um, and General Motors and, and so many uh, great authors and, and thought leaders that have come and shared us uh, with what they're really seeing the future of work looking like. So put all those into a book um, and love to have you check it out um, if you're interested. But uh, Talent Talk is live here every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. But most of you actually get us through the podcast that we publish later on uh, on iTunes and iHeartRadio. Um, between all of those, we've you know amassed a pretty good following of over 10,000 of you coming in a day, downloading uh, one or more shows. So big thank you to everyone who's being a part of the show. But let's go ahead and get started uh, with my first guest, uh, Bruce. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's nice to meet you, Chris. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, what's important for us to know, you know, about you, about your work, uh, as it relates to our conversation today, and most importantly, you know, really specifically what you're doing over there at the International Center for Enterprise uh, Engagement. Well, I enjoyed listening to the intro to your show because it's really what we're all about, and it's I've been on a 25-year uh, quest and uh, to establish a formal field that today is known as enterprise engagement. And uh, the only personal elements that I need to share today is for any of your listeners that if you want to have an easy life, don't try to make money uh, educating the world. It <laughs> takes time uh, for business to change and even to wake up something as simple as this proposition, that if your organization has a strategic and tactical plan to engage all of your stakeholders, not just customers or employees, but everybody 
around a united brand, the way Whole Foods does, the way, uh, say, uh, Southwest Airlines does. Your organization will outperform others in the stock market, if you're a private company, financially, and if you're not not for profit, in terms of results. And you would think, Chris, that would be something simple to accomplish, and yet I've got uh, plenty of gray hairs, and uh, or a lot less of them, <laughs> because of that effort and having three kids. Well, and I certainly understand that. Um, what's that old saying? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. So maybe you could talk about what enterprise engagement really is. I mean, you've, you've sort of set up the scenario here that we can. Re- there, there's a lot to to it, and we can have a lot of benefits from um, doing it well, uh, despite whether or not organizations want to actually take that on. But what is it specifically? I mean, how would you define uh, that type of engagement? Well, we worked, of course, uh, quite a while to make that definition, and this was back in 2008 when the concept that we call enterprise engagement was crystallized, crystallized. but as I said, it comes really based on research that goes back 15 years before that, and it's this basic proposition. Uh, Enterprise engagement is achieving organizational goals by fostering the proactive involvement of all stakeholders critical to success in an integrated way. So it's not just about employee engagement or customer engagement or channel partner engagement or all of that lingo. It's about having everybody aligned toward the same goal so that the promises made in marketing get kept in at every step of the way, at the experience level, but also at the product and service delivery level, so that people feel that the promise was kept and that there is so much financial proof that this works. There's proof that it has an impact on your share price performance, significant proof that your company will do better on the stock market on a sustainable basis, much better even than with stock buybacks because you don't have to make stock buybacks to get that result. So it's really, Chris, a matter of education, and I think a generational thing. I think our CEOs today are, many of them are from a generation um, or a mindset that didn't view people as a human capital asset, and that the big opportunity, and I think the millennials will help drive this, is a recognition that human capital today is our biggest asset and that it's undervalued, untapped, and that it's the biggest opportunity for wealth creation today. Well, and that's a good point about wealth creation is I think that's maybe where we've gotten off track is we've put um, the wealth or profit of maybe one part of the organization above and beyond the other. But to your point, the, the proof really is uh, from everything we've seen, and there's so many studies out there, that when you put that focus back into uh, having that engagement, having that great culture uh, with all of your stakeholders. I love that kind of point that you make. It's not just your employees. Um, that they consistently do better. I mean, that was what I saw. I mean, and I, I viewed it through slightly a different lens in the book that I wrote about what are the greatest cultures doing. Uh, there's very specific things they're doing. But they're, it's clear that they're doing something. <laughs> and 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 it's working. And yet there's so many companies out there that would rather tinker a little bit more with their software or make their product a little bit better or lower their price a little bit more to try to get their market share that they want. And that's not necessarily the uh, where the other companies are going. Is there maybe a particular area of weakness that you tend to see an organization has as you begin to, to make your own evaluations on 
you know, they're that type of engagement. Yeah, it's very clear. Um, it's a lack of the CEO having a clear recognition and vision that human capital is the number one asset that he or she manages and that it's not a warm and fuzzy anymore and that they're literally their brand reputation, uh, their level of list, uh, risk, uh, you know, uh, with litigation today uh, and their share price performance and even ability to raise capital is going to be increasingly driven by their ability to effectively manage human capital as this field has really now crystallized for reasons I'll explain in a minute. And that is basically uh, investors and um, the ISO standards people, and we'll talk about that now, get it. So what's missing is a systematic approach. And it's the same systematic approach that your questions refer to later that Six Sigma brought to quality management and process management. It's, so it's the CEO getting it, uh, and then it's implementing a system that connects the dots between those audiences that together create success and achieve a goal, and then the processes that we already use, and many times very inefficiently to engage people to achieve goals. So think of Six Sigma or quality management as great examples of what needs to be done in human capital management. Uh, and Chris, before this call, of course, I checked out your background, and I don't need to tell you that most companies, I would say 85% of companies, do not have a strategic and tactical human capital management strategy. And if they don't, most of them are going to have to within three years. Right. And that's, and that's huge. And I will tell you that it, <laughs> if they start today, they might be lucky if they could really have something humming in three years. Um, there's a lot of big things you can do right away to have a huge impact, but to really put in something, and I know I'd be interested if you agree with this or not, that really works for the long term, that can really be viable and, and do some of the things that we've sort of mentioned here and promised, um, they're going to need a bit of time to do that, right? Well, yes, but you don't need as much time as you think. And I think that's, and I don't mean to say you're saying this. I think it's, that's a typical CEO red herring. We have history to guide us. They did it with quality management. Quality management achieved major results. Now, not in two months, not in three months, no. But no one would deny that it achieved great results. But what people forget, is, and we'll talk about this, I believe, in a minute, the reason that ISO has now identified the requirement, not the option, but the requirement for the CEO to lead ISO standard, whichever one it is, and there's 60 of them, means that it has now been proven <laughs> that that it, you, there is a correlation between connecting the dots and, uh, and that anyone who's applied Six Sigma, uh, again, I'm not going to say it's easy. No, it is not. And we're going to get to, if we have time, what it requires, but it does start very simply at the top. And well, if you have well we've, we've teased them. everyone with this with ISO. Why don't we dive into that, right? I mean, wh where are you seeing, how does that work uh, with ISO standards and, and really involving the stakeholders and Six, six Sigma? You know, where are you, wh how does that work? Well, ISO is a very poor marketing organization. And what many CEOs do not know at 2 million companies worldwide that have ISO standards is that they, are, they will now, for their next round of audits, have to comply with something called NXSL. And from yours and my standpoint, you would go, wow, this is an opportunity, because Annex SL calls for what just you and I have dedicated our careers to, 
uh, and excuse me for making that inference, but based on my reviewing of your background, it seems that you have, yep. that believe that a company has to have a strategic focus on human capital and not just throw ad hoc initiatives at it and platitudes. So what ISO realized in 2012 is that they had left the human management issue out of standards. So a committee was formed, actually it was before, yeah, it was around 2012, uh, and they created a set of standards and requirements called Annex SL that to you would read like uh, a dream come true. Because what they realized was that, whoops, we left out of all of our standards the requirement for organizations to apply the same systematic approach to processes that they need, that they should be established, uh, you know, uh, applying to people. So what's so exciting about this, you know, Chris, from your standpoint, is that this is a requirement now. It says it in it. In, in the NXSL standards, which are in all 60 standards, the leader, CEO, can no longer delegate it. They can no longer say, talk to my HR or quality department. Nope, has to be the CEO. So in an audit, the CEO has to drive it. Number two, the CEO has to drive it down throughout the entire organization. That means all the frontline managers, all the mid-level managers all need to be singing the same mantra. They need to uh, connect, be able to demonstrate, and there's tremendous leeway, uh, Chris, as to how they do it, but they need to demonstrate that they're connecting the dots between all these different human capital initiatives, training, communications, rewards, recognition, uh, assessment surveys. They have to show how they're connecting the, the dots to a result. And the summary of that, really, Chris, if you think about it, it addresses the big reason why engagement, employee engagement right now is under fire and, and why we're now using terms like employee experience, right? Because companies spend all this money on employee engagement surveys and then do nothing. Or they put up a ping pong table in the lunchroom. Or they give people flex time on Fridays. No. Let's apply the same process that Sig Sigma and uh, quality management have done to the way we manage people, and we'll get a better result. That's that's what it boils down to. Well, it makes uh, it's no surprise to me that you have co-authored a book, given your passion and expertise in this area. Uh, it's called The Enterprise Engagement, uh, The Roadmap. Uh, and it really provides that kind of first formal process for uh, profiting from engagement to business. So can you talk about the, the book and recent updates? And you're in your fourth edition. Uh, congratulations. And, and how this maybe impacts business in the future. Well, what's really exciting about it, Chris, uh, and again, from your background, I know you'll understand, there are big benefits for people in their lives to applying this. You know, 70% of people are have miserable on Sunday night. That's the reality of it. 70, those are the statistics. 70% feel lousy before they go to work. Um, I doubt you do. Um, uh, another stunning number is that the level of employee engagement has not increased over 10 to 15 years, according to Gallup. It's still around 40%, 38% at best. Uh, then you have customer engagement. According to the American Customer Satisfaction Association, it hasn't budged in 20, since 1994. The general satisfaction of the cons- customer in America is 75%, despite how much money spent every year in marketing and promotions, $500 billion, something like that. So something's not working. So the idea, again, is to learn what, what did ISO do for quality management. It applied a systematic approach. It made quality, as I guess it was Ford who said, it made quality job one, 
What does that mean? If it's job one, I assume the CEO's in charge, right? I assume he or she was at the time. And then two, and I don't mean to lecture you, Chris, because of course you understand all of these things so well, and then it's making sure that we recruit leaders who understand our values and our culture and participate, and that we make sure all of the leaders down the chain, because they're the ones who make us miserable on Sunday nights, that all of them have those values and understand the mission. And then, of course, uh, that there's a system to assess all of our leaders and to, and to look at red zones in our cultures where people are being poisoned by leaders, and there's technology to do that. And then to make sure our communications and our learning and even our job design, our community efforts, diversity, wellness, safety, rewards and recognition, analytics, all of these things are the tools, the modern tools of the CEO, the chief engagement officer, if you will. And I believe now this is inevitable between ISO standards, and we haven't even talked about the investor pressures yet. Um, there are $15.7 trillion of investment capital now run by asset managers who are now asking companies, and Chris, this will be magic to you, are asking companies to disclose their human capital investments and their scorecards related to the engagement of all their stakeholders, and even such questions as revenue per employee, profit per employee, and things that demonstrate that the investors understand better than the CEOs today this new discipline of enterprise engagement. So, you know, you mentioned um, a lot of things there, but one of the things I wanted to kind of ask you about and see what your thoughts are, given all of the the statistics and the studies that have happened that engagement has been at a particular level for a very, very long time, why do you think that is? You know, have we gotten better and and gotten worse at the same time, and so the medium has just kind of stayed where it's at? Uh, I mean, because this has been something we've talked about, we've known for a while, and we have great examples of companies doing it well. Um, Why do you think engagement is still as low as it is? Because the CEOs of this nation still don't get it. I don't think that 85% of companies would be able to meet the ISO 10,018 or even NXL standard of having a formal written plan driven by the CEO, as I defined before. And I think it's because of short-termism. And even in a, because companies think that that's a long-term benefit, and most companies are thinking short-term, and for public companies or private equity companies, the CEO has a very short-term focus. But the joke is, you can actually get more rapid results from the strategy than most people think. There are examples, great examples, of companies that use these strategies to dramatically reduce costs. Um, there is a you, there's a systematic approach to engagement. For instance, if you need to reduce thirty five million dollars in costs, you know there are tangible ways to engage people to do that. So what we lack really is that it's not taught in schools, uh, and that's the goal of our book, by the way, or to help do that. But it's not taught anywhere. So business CEOs don't know what to do. They simply don't know what to do. And oh, and then everybody's hawking these little short-term. You know, it's sort of like the Wild West in the '90s, in the 1890s, or whatever, right? With these guys rolling around town. Oh, use my employee engagement technique. Oh, use my app. Oh, use my employee benefit program. Or use this. You know, so everybody has all of these bright shiny objects. When quality, what quality management standards and others, I think Chris have taught us, is that what we simply need is a systematic approach. And they're great case studies. 
you could read the business, read Latin, the 2017 annual report for Whole Foods. Now they're part of uh, Amazon, but that's still available. And it is a document, a testament to an organization that implements and discloses its processes for enterprise engagement. They don't call it that, but it is that they because they talk about all their stakeholders. And they have financially, their stock and whatnot has generally outperformed the S&P 500. Um, those are really important things for people to think about. Um, want to make sure we ask you uh, one of our last uh, final questions here, real quick, before we run out of time. You know, is there a book that you're reading right now that uh, you might share with us? Well, the book I'm reading right now is a gift uh, my daughter gave me about the monuments of France uh, uh, that and how they tell the story of French history. But I will mention a final book that I read recently that I think is great for your readers, and it's about John D. Rockefeller, of all people. It's a book called Titan. And that is his history. And what many people don't know is that he's known as a robber baron. He's known as somebody who is ruthless in business, but he never had any strikes. There was never a strike at any company that John D. Rockefeller owned. He paid money, made sure all of his employees had a living wage. He was known as a not as we all know as a magnificent uh, benefactor to the world. He cured rickets. Uh, he helped um, people in so many different ways. So I want to leave your readers with a thought that, uh, amazingly, this concept of enterprise engagement is actually a significant wealth creator, but also something that does great things for society, and that it is inevitable. Maybe it won't be called enterprise engagement, but you don't have time for your listeners to explain all the other proof uh, that this is all coming together. Yeah, and absolutely thinking about your legacy is something that uh, is important. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for your insights today and giving our listeners uh, so many great things to think about. How can they get a hold of you or learn more uh, about the International Center for Enterprise Engagement? Well, uh, they can simply go to just email me at bolger at the, T-H-E-E-E-A dot org. That's bolger at the, E-E-A dot org. And our website is the, E-E-A dot org. Well, fantastic, Bruce. Uh, hopefully we have you come back at some point and give us an update on all the cool things that you're doing. But uh, again, thank you so much for being a part of today's show. Thanks, Chris. All right, we'll be right back after this quick commercial break, and we'll bring in my second guest. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months, and the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system, or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news, or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. In case you missed my first guest, Bruce Bolger, you can listen to his interview. Uh, We'll post it up on iTunes and iHeartRadio as well as 
interview we're about to have with uh, Brittany Barton. She's the CEO of Apex Generation uh, Leadership. As a reminder, don't forget you can send your questions right now or even after the fact. Keep the conversation going by sending your tweets to at PeopleG2. Use that hashtag Talent Talk and any other hashtags that apply. Love to find your tweets there, and we certainly stay uh, active with you there. As well as on LinkedIn, we post the shows there and Facebook. Uh, we're all over the place. You can also find us on TalentTalkRadio.com if you want to uh, search through a little easier there of all the past episodes, but uh, iTunes and iHeartRadio are great places to listen as well. All right, so let's go ahead and bring uh, Brittany into the show. Uh, Brittany, welcome. Hey, Chris. Thank you so much. Yeah, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Of course, uh, you and I know each other, and uh, but what, what should people know about you uh, that would certainly be the most applicable for the context of our conversation today? And of course, what are you doing also over at, uh, at Apex? Absolutely. Well, um, I will start off with the fact that um, I am a millennial. And I think in the context of our conversation today, that's important because in a lot of ways, uh, people might look and say, hey, you fit a lot of the typical millennial stereotypes. And I can look back and even see that that's maybe been true in my life until I had some really valuable life coaches and mentors uh, speak into where I was and where I was headed and I, I, of course, personally would love to think of myself as an atypical millennial um, now, but our focus um, at AGL is really on helping bridge generation gaps, um, specifically through coaching and inviting um, businesses, leaders, developers to invest in young adults, in millennials, in students um, through the power of life coaching. So for the for, from here on out, we're going to refer to Apex Generation Leadership as AGL, so we don't have to say that mouthful, but uh, hopefully everyone remember yeah, what that is. for catching that. Yeah. Um, so why, maybe kind of get its very core, why does AGL exist? Why did you start this? You know, what, 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 what if we get down to the, that basis of why, how do you explain that? Sure. So I had a coach in college, a life coach, and I think looking back, I certainly didn't realize how significant that was. You know, in my early 20s, had a life coach, great. I appreciated that opportunity. But, but looking back, I think, is really where the power comes in to realize that at that pivotal time in my life, um, in my early 20s, making decisions about life, about college, about the future, um, to have someone walking alongside of me, not just um, not just helping out with some of those things that that are essential in college, time management, scheduling, balance, things like that, um, but really thinking intentionally about my future, being able to think about where I wanted to be 10, 15, 20 years down the road, to be thinking about how my perspectives and mindsets in those formative years were really going to set me up for success. Um, that was powerful. And looking back, I can see the huge impact that that had, not just on that period of my life, but all throughout um, everything that's followed, transitioning into adulthood, working at a variety of jobs, launching a business and starting AGL. Um, so I would say for, for me, AGL exists really because I see the power of coaching to change lives. And first of all, I saw that in my life and then have worked over the years with um, hundreds of clients, primarily students and young adults, um, helping them to also find purpose and passion and success in their day-to-day -day life. 
So we kind of identified, you know, why you started it. I think we understand the need and you really, you know, uh, were felt a great impact uh, there and knew that there was something you could do to pass on and to start a business. So, but for all those kind of inspiring entrepreneurs out there, aside from identifying an area of need that you have passion around, how did you actually get started then once you had the idea to start AGL? Mm, sure. So I've spent the past nine years as a coach and, and initially that was working in the context of other organizations and businesses um, worked at a company that employed me as a coach and then developed a coaching program in a couple of other organizations. And all along the way, just knew that, first of all, coaching and, and working with young people was something I planned to do for the rest of my life. Um, but then also I wanted to be able to do that in my own context. And so um, especially I think as I was growing in my profession and knowing I'd worked with a lot of students, I'd worked honestly with hundreds of clients, um, but also seeing the opportunity for me to grow and, and stretch myself beyond just that demographic and seeing how important it was, not just for students, but for really young adults making a transition to a career for the first time, making that transition into adulthood um, was really important as well. And so that's, I think, where the idea of AGL really came from, that um, number one, I loved coaching. Coaching too. I do. I do. I launch out and have my my own business, my own practice. Um, and then number three, wanting to see coaching applied um, specifically to young adults, to millennials making that transition. Um, decided to make that happen. So uh, for me, it. I, I know everybody talks about you know a side hustle or you know sometimes you have to to do your thing on the side, work late hours, and that's what happened. Um, I actually made a transition away from a coaching job for a little while um, just to have the mental capacity to think about building a business and worked at a nonprofit um, on this. Well, that was my main job, built the business on the side, and then was able over the last couple of years to slowly transition from um, you know, that, that day job, my, the nonprofit work being my full-time gig, to making AGL uh, my full-time gig. So that's where we're at. So, you know, there's so many millennials now in the workplace. I think it's the largest generation now uh, in, inside of those who are actively working. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that can that can be um, make it viably important for companies to ensure that they have accessible coaching, but also maybe a bit overwhelming because there's, they have so many people that fit that category. Um, so maybe you could talk about why you think access to coaching for millennials is so important. Mm, absolutely. It's interesting, Chris, because for many, many years, coaching has been really established and recognized as a defining opportunity for growth for leaders, for executives. And so for a long time, that's been the focus, you know, uh, sort of the C-suite, upper level management, managers, etc. see and value coaching. The reason I think that it's so vitally important for young adults, for millennials, for leaders um, who are really just getting started in their careers is because it, coaching really is a process that builds growth. Um, you know, and young people, it's, it's an ideal time, right? The brain is still developing. Sometimes you might look and say, well, that, that could be a problem in the workforce. You know, you see all the ideas and all the energy and enthusiasm without 
the structure and the intentional planning and growth and strategy. And coaching really bridges that gap. It really helps young people take that energy, enthusiasm, creativity, flexibility, and use it in a way that's really intentional and is able to help them think about the future, both the future of their job, um, their own personal future, what their role looks like in the company. Um, it's They're able to be strategic through the power of coaching. And so to be able to bring that to someone who has, you know, almost unlimited energy and, and potential and creativity is really just powerful. I think the struggle is that it's not always affordable for millennials, for, for young adults just getting started in the workplace. Maybe they see the need for investing in themselves and their growth, um, but, it you know, they may be starting a family or they may just – you know, just be in a, an entry-level job and not have access to that. And so that's really what we're, we're hoping to do and have been doing um, is, is making it, working to make it accessible for young adults. Well, I guess if they, you know, uh, through coaching or whatever means that they're trying to improve themselves, do you think there are certain things that millennials really want from their workplace? And are, are there things that they just want to get out of work in general? And are all those different? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's funny because maybe a lot of employers hear us talk about millennials and they're going to be thinking, again, kind of stereotypical millennials, like, oh, gosh, they just want, um, you know, the snack bar and the beanbag chairs and the hoverboards and things like that. Um, but I think what millennials are really looking for in the workplace is, is a lot different than that. And actually, we we have talked about and have done sessions where we spend a whole workshop on this. Um, so I uh, can't really get into all the details um, right now, but I think in short, millennials really want a few key things. Um, they want to have purpose in their work. They want to be clear about what they want and about where their work is going. Uh, they want the passion, and that just means finding meaning in their everyday work, seeing how it connects to the bigger picture, seeing how they're giving back both in their workplace and how their workplace may be giving back outside of that. Um, and then to be able to find success, to know where they're going and how they're going to get there. So having employers who are able to help facilitate that growth, to facilitate that intentional direction, I think is so important. Yeah. And th those are really important things. And, you know, um, I, I remember hearing uh, some stories from you about you know, often some simple coaching can really help millennials um, and non-millennials communicate better or be managed better um, and just sort of, you know, getting through some of those, I guess, generational differences of, of how we interpret the same data. Um, but ultimately, what we find out, and I receive, what I've always found out, and we'll see if you agree with this, is that in the end, the generations seem to be very, are very aligned. It's just often the perceptions or the way which they interpret things. Um, they have different experiences. Um, and, and so that coaching kind of seems to bring people to the same page. Is, is that what you're seeing? I absolutely see that that's the case. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I worked at a company for a while that I think had this mindset of they knew what millennials wanted. They thought that, you know, we wanted the, the beanbag chairs and the hoverboards. And they actually did a great job at, like, having sponsored company trips um, that involved, you know, rock climbing. And, you know, we had our unlimited 
locally roasted, sustainably sourced coffee, you know, all those things that they thought millennials wanted. And honestly, I watched them over the course of a year lose almost 80% of their millennial workforce. It was crazy. And, and the other side of that is the millennial employees were saying, wow, you really don't get it. You're just throwing surface level things at, at us thinking it'll resolve the problem. And the problem isn't that we want all of these things. We, we want to know that our work is meaningful. We want to be respected and trusted to do the work that we were hired for. And I think that those things are the same regardless of the generations. You know, you take any person and ask them what it is they're looking for. I think they're going to say they want respect and trust in the workplace. They want to know that they can communicate effectively with their team. And that includes people they work with on a daily basis. It includes their bosses. It includes people they may manage. They want to know that that communication is effective. And they want to see that their work has purpose and value. And I think the things that connect the generations in the workforce are really so much bigger than the things that divide, like maybe technology or changing um changing values or expectations. But I think at, at the core, there's really a lot more that we're, we're on the same page about if we can just learn to communicate about that effectively. So what is it, what's in it for everybody else? You know, if we, if we get past the ping pong tables as our strategy to engage our workforce, millennial or not, and we get past, um, you know, some of these things, um, how do we how do we really explain this to companies as far as what's in it for them? You know, how can millennial millennials really revolutionize organizations? What can they bring to the table um, that you know companies might expect as a result of getting this good coaching and getting it right with with that that group of people? Well, I, I think first of all, it's something you mentioned earlier, Chris, which is that um, in the next few years, by 2020, I think millennials are going to be the largest percentage of the workforce. So like it or not, (laughs) they're coming and pretty soon they're going to be the leaders uh, in our industries, in our organizations. And so we have to be thinking intentionally just from a basic sheer number perspective. Um, You know, if you're not thinking about growing millennials into the leaders that your company or your industry needs to be successful, it's going to cause problems a few years from now. Um, but I think once we get past the, well, number one, we have to engage and address this issue, and we look at the power of what could happen if we engage and address it well, I think you're not, companies are, are probably not going to find a more loyal or creative workforce than millennials. Um, I think we're a generation that doesn't look at our day-to-day and, and think we have to find this optimal balance. We have to have work-life balance. We're going to clock in at the beginning of the day and clock out when we're done. We're looking for work that inspires. And if we yeah. find that, if we, sorry, um, if we find um, something that, that motivates us, that drives us, we're going to give it everything we've got. And we're going to look not for, for balance, you know, where we can turn our brains off at the end of the day, but we're going to look for meaningful work, we're going to look for ways that we can optimize our life to facilitate the work that we love. When we're bought into a vision, when we're bought into a mission, we're going to be all in. And I think people um, maybe waver on this or not, but 
I'm not sure that that's that much different than any other generation. I just think that millennials are far more cognizant of it. They say put that at the at higher on their list or maybe put that as number one on a on a wish list for work. I mean, I can't imagine anybody in my lifetime that went to work that was like, I don't really care if I'm inspired or not. You know, I don't really care if I mm-hmm. like what we're doing. But maybe for other generations, number one was something else. Maybe it was, you know, security or, um, you know, they could make the right amount of money or, you know, whatever that thing was or to have learn on the job and, and get a particular skill. But I think we always all wanted to be inspired by our work. But Millennials seem to really put that really, really high on their list. And um, that's a matter of companies being able to pivot slightly and talk about what their mission is and allow people to opt in and um, to know if if they're going to have the right people who are aligned, um, again, instead of throwing bee bags at them, right? Absolutely. You know, I know one of your main points is that, um, and I've started to, I guess, maybe kind of, talk about this is that generations are the same and that millennials are no different than previous generations. So how can coaching help bridge the gap for millennials and the organizations um, and the companies they work for? What is, what, what, what is old, what haven't we covered that coaching is really doing uh, for millennials and the organization at, at large? You know, I think that coaching really focuses on building perspective and it focuses on building empathy. And I think about one particular client I had who had just this incredible aha moment through coaching that I don't think anyone could have told her or taught her. She had to get there for herself. Um, But she had landed basically her dream job. She knew what she wanted. She was doing it. And she got into this job. And after a few weeks, she started coming to our sessions, really stressed out. She was frustrated with her boss. She was frustrated that the job wasn't everything she had dreamed that it would be. And she actually told me at one point that, you know, I think my boss hates me, which are some pretty strong words. And through the process of coaching, she started to, to have some insights about herself, not about her boss, not about her workplace, but insights about herself that were really key to turning that situation around. And she realized that people had been telling her her whole life. Again, she realized this. Nobody else told her. Her boss didn't have to tell her. I didn't have to tell her. But she realized that she'd more or less been told her whole life that she was exceptional. You know, she was a straight-A student. She volunteered in her community. Um, Everyone told her how awesome she was and how the things she did were so great. And then she got into a job that you know, she wasn't 100% at. There was a learning curve. She had areas to grow in. And initially, she was hearing that communication um, from her boss and hearing that I'm not good enough and I'm failing and this person is really critical of me and my work. But once she was able to, to start to shift her perspective and to realize, hey, I think my boss really is here for my growth. She's looking to help me develop. She wants me to do better. She sees my potential and is calling that out in me. Everything shifted. And it was really powerful to see her make that shift and be able to go into work and not just continue to build that frustration and and wedge something in between that relationship with her and her boss, but to be able to go in and say, wow, 
I actually can see that this feedback means my boss cares about me and that makes all the difference. That's a really powerful story about perceptions, about how you interpret information and having that coach try to help you figure out what that really means. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, is, is it that your boss is trying to help you or is it that your boss hates you? <laughs> and pretty, you think how much you're going to spend on having to replace that person if they go yeah. and what kind of in- incredible talent you might be losing if there's a disconnect between the managers and the employees and especially if it's a generational issue. Yeah. Well, um, sounds like the work that you're doing is incredibly important and certainly I hope people will uh, check you out. Um, you know, before we get to some of that contact information, I want to make sure we ask a couple of our favorite questions. And the first one is, is there an app or a gadget that you've added to your life recently that you could share with us? Oh, oh, fun. Um, you know, actually, I, I'm going to answer that with a, a little bit of a different response because I've been trying like a million different apps, you know, running a business, like always looking to be more efficient, more productive. And I had this realization a week or two ago um, that I was spending so much time trying to reinvent the wheel and failing to just use the resources that were working for me. Um, so, you know, I've kind of just gone back to the basics. I've been using the, the notes app on my phone. That's my to-do list. It's always accessible. It's really easy. It works for me. Um, we use uh, in terms of like team building and things, a lot of Google Docs and then just whiteboards and markers, um, which may, may kind of not be what your audience is wanting to hear or planning to hear. But I think for me, it was important to realize that sometimes you just got to do what works and it may not be fancy or sexy, but it gets the job done. So that's, I've kind of just right. gone back to basics lately. Going back to basics, get the job done. And even, even it's still funny to hear you say using a Google doc or a notes on an, on an iPhone is back to basics. Oh, sure. <laughs> I mean, that's the basis that's could true, be, you know, true. my drawing it in the sand. But yeah, I mean, I get the point. I mean, it's you're simplifying and it's of taking all the energy you are using to try to find the next best thing. You could just get the thing done. Uh, and that's exactly. super important, especially for anyone out there as an entrepreneur. Um, and then, of course, is there a book that you're reading right now that you might share with us? Yes, I uh, just actually started listening to a Michael Hyatt book called Living Forward. I'm listening to it on audio right now. I've got a few others I'm reading, but this one's my favorite at the moment. Um, and he talks about how to really be intentional with building a life plan. Um, he is a coach. Um, he writes it with another coach, and they talk about how to be intentional about building that life that you love. And really what that looks like is starting with getting it on paper. Because if we can't visualize and state what it is we want our lives to look like, we're not actually ever going to be able to get there. So he just talks a lot about some really practical tools on what it takes to to set that down on paper and to think through. He has like eight to ten areas in your life that he walks you through thinking about. And he talks, too, about what does it look like to have balance. And balance doesn't mean you have to have necessarily equal attention in all of those areas, but you should be giving each one the appropriate attention it needed to move forward. And I'm just really loving that concept right now, and it's it's been a fun book to read. Well, Brittany, thank you so much for joining me today. How can people get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more about AGL and maybe want some help with their millennials and getting some coaching? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say um, you can send us an email um, either impact at coachingforgood.org is um, our, our main email, or 
you can shoot me a personal email as well. I'm always happy to hear from people. Just Brittany.Barden at gmail.com. Well, again, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Hopefully we'll have you come back at some point and give us an update on all the cool things that you're doing. Um, next week, my guests are Renee Frazier, the CEO of Frazier Communications, and John Jackson, president of William Jessup University. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2. 